All right, John chapter 14, just uh, one verse uh, this morning, verse 27. The Lord says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we're so thankful again for the opportunity to worship you and to praise you and to come together collectively in this uh, room. Uh, We're thankful for the people you continue to send to our ministry, and we pray, Lord, for them, that we might be able to uh, minister to them well, shepherd them. Uh, We thank you for your kindness and and grace to us. Uh, We thank you for our dear brother Rick, who you have uh, preserved and then allowed to uh, leave uh, Russia and come back to the United States. And so we praise you for that answer of prayer, and we just pray your blessing on him as he kind of reacclimates uh, to uh, the United States after he's been so many years there in the lands of Russia. We pray again, Lord, that you'd go before us, open uh, your word to our hearts and minds, and may we receive from you uh, the wonderful truth that Christ has uh, spoken here in verse uh, 27 of this great book of John. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in our ongoing study here, the Gospel of John, we are, of course, in what is known as the Upper Room Discourse. We've come to verse 27, and it really kind of stands alone. Uh, It's just a tremendous verse of hope, help, encouragement. Uh, Again, out of love that Jesus has for his disciples, he's revealing uh, truth to them um, uh, because uh, his departure is imminent. Their hearts are heavy, they're, they're anxious. And again, note very carefully what he says there in verse 27. He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. It's pretty similar to what he said at the top of the chapter, chapter 14, verse 1. Where he says, let not your heart be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me. But here in verse 27, he repeats that word peace twice. Peace it's a very popular word, but nearly an impossible reality uh, to uh, come to in a fallen world. We have a world full of turmoil, a world, world full of anxiety, fear, and confusion. Anything and everything but peace. There's no peace on a personal level, no peace on a national level or an international level in the world in which we live. Will Durant, if you're familiar with him, has written some volumes on the history of the world. He said in the last 3,500 years, there's been less than 300 years that could be called peaceful in this world, meaning an absence of war. Our world is full of many things that threaten to rob us of our peace. For example, you're aware that society all around us is collapsing. Our culture is uh, filled with ever- Increasing levels of anger, rage, animosity, chaos, riots, looting, protesting. These things have become almost a quote-unquote normal part of the activities of our life. Crimes running rampant in the cities, violent crimes out of control, murder rates are at all-time highs, in spite of the fact that we have one of the highest, if not the highest, incarceration rates on the planet. And in this climate of -of out-of-control crime rates, our Many of our politicians have demonized our police forces, those men and women who risk their very lives to defend us from criminals. And at, many, at the same time, many politicians are calling for the abolition of the, or defunding of the police departments, again, in the midst of violence and anarchy all across the country, which is just going to add to the chaos if you get rid of the police. 
the same time, many district attorneys across the country are refusing to prosecute those who openly commit crimes. And instead of prosecuting dangerous criminals, our Department of Justice has decided to prosecute parents who raise protests against the sexual abuse of their children, either by the medical establishment or by the sexualization of their children in public schools. The parents are being labeled as violent extremists and domestic terrorists and are either being threatened with jail or actually thrown into jail. And again, our legal system refuses to prosecute actual domestic terrorists and violent extremists and other dangerous criminals. There's a never-ending stream of people promoting divisions based on the color of one's skin or ethnic origin. As we're being told that the least racist and most successful multi-ethnic nation the world has ever known is now somehow almost instantaneously has become irredeemably racist. Now we're told that we're racist, we're all racists. And every system and every structure in this country is racist and there's therefore an ever-increasing degenerating uh, relationship between people of different skin tones leading to increased strife and increased division fear, anxiety, distrust, and a lack of peace really among people. In this climate, fear seems to be the coin of the realm, as it were, which obviously takes away our peace. Our medical establishment has promoted fear from a virus that our own centers of disease control stated from the beginning was nearly survivable for almost every population group. And as soon as the panic started to subside, they came along and said that we should be fearful of dying from another virus, a different virus than the first virus, and then another virus, and then another virus, and then another virus, each one coming for us, all going to kill us. Therefore, fear and anxiety and a lack of peace is elevated. And if you don't get a shot or multiple shots or wear a mask or social distance, then you're not only going to kill yourself, but you're going to kill everybody around you, which causes even more animosity, division, fear, and a lack of peace between people. We're being told that we're in imminent danger of destroying the planet because of so-called global warming or man-made climate change. Therefore, we should all be fearful that the planet is going to be destroyed, which is going to cause people to lose peace, right? You're going to lose your peace. If there's no planet, there's no food, there's no water, there's no air, then you might get dead And as one commentator often says, getting dead's bad. (laughs) So you should fear that. You should fear getting dead. In response, we're purposefully and suicidally destroying our energy sector. That's going to do nothing but cause more harm and death to countless numbers of people because it's good to have energy so you don't freeze to death in the winter. And at the same time, we're purposely destroying ways of maintaining our ability to feed people by over-regulation of farmers, removing land that can grow crops, houses everywhere. I don't know if you notice that around here. Houses everywhere on land that once produced crops. Killing cattle, killing other livestock so they don't produce methane gas under the guise of trying to quote-unquote save the planet. And at the same time we're doing all of this, there are various agencies around the world increasingly sending out uh, messages of warning of imminent food shortages and famines on the near horizon for a variety of different reasons. 
some due to overregulation of our farmers and our farmlands, others due to lack of fertilizers being available, others due to the lack of ability to distribute crops, other uh, situations, some of this due to the war in Ukraine, which is a major worldwide grain exporter, and some of this, again, the lack of or the coming of uh, food shortages from a variety of other distribution uh, problems in our supply chain. So you probably should be fearful that you're not going to have anything to eat very soon. And that might cause you to lack peace. And then you add to the anxiety and fear of every day in the headlines, not since I was a kid have I heard the kind of discussion that I'm hearing every day in the headlines, more and more discussion, more and more real talk of a real possible nuclear war breaking out, not only in Europe, but perhaps worldwide, with obvious catastrophic results that might just add to the absence of your peace. I kid you not, in the last two weeks, I saw a PSA public service announcement uh, from a television channel someplace in New York telling the residents what to do there if they were to be hit by an atomic bomb and happen to survive the explosion. And I'm not kidding. This is what the person said. Run outside, uh, or run, run from the outside to inside, close the door and the windows, take off your clothes, put them in a plastic bag, and wait. Wait for what? Nuclear winter? Uh, wait from dying from radiation poisoning? Close your doors and close your windows. I'm sure you'll keep the radiation out. And if you wanted to add more to the list, there's more you could think about that might cause you to lack peace. Getting a little more personal, we could add the problems that we're facing at home. Problems with our spouses, problems with our kids. Marriages, many marriages are in shambles. There's no love, no care, no concern, no communication. No peace in the family. Families are falling apart. Anger, hostility, conflict, animosity, all robbing the home of peace. Divorce is rampant. There's an ever-increasing number of children who are being born illegitimately without married mother and father in the home, which just adds to the instability in the home. There's no peace at school. Increased violence amongst students at school. Uh, increased student-on-student in crime or uh, student-on-teacher uh, or teacher-on-student violence at school at the schools. There's an ever-increasing sexualization of our children at schools, and horrifically, there's an ever-increasing number of school shootings. So parents are uncertain when they send their kids to school in the morning whether they're going to come home in the afternoon, either alive or the same gender they sent them in the morning. There's no peace at work. Problems at work between employees and employers, trouble with other coworkers, problems in the country, problems around the world, an ever-ending list of problems, an ever-ending, ever-ending or never-ending opportunities and situations in a fallen world uh, to be fearful of, to cause you to be full of anxiety, depressed, despair, robbed of peace, because there's absolutely no peace anywhere. And the world on its own will never find peace. The world apart from God and apart from Christ will never experience the peace they desperately desire to possess. The question is not original to me, and maybe you've heard the question and you know the answer ahead of time. But the question is, throughout all of human history, how many peace treaties that have been signed have been broken? The answer, all of them. 
Because the world on its own, apart from Christ, will never find peace. What the world tries to do is artificially uh, induce peace. Uh, The world tries to give you a moment of calmness, a, a moment of tranquility, and it does so through drugs or alcohol or illicit sexual activity. Uh, in a means to try to escape the lack of peace that they experience, that the world experiences in their own lives. And sadly, all these kind of activities just add to the sadness because they just bring even more trouble, more heartache, more depression, anxiety, and a lack of peace. Again, the world on its own will never find peace. But Christ offers peace to those who belong to him. My peace... I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Now the word peace in the New Testament is arene. Um, it's uh, really defined as a state of tranquility, exemption from rage, havoc, war, peace between individuals, harmony, concord, uh, security, safety, prosperity, felicity, joy. Best definition I found it was in a Greek lexicon, a Greek New Testament lexicon, defines peace like this. It says it's the tranquil state of the soul assured of its salvation through Christ and so fearing nothing from God and content with its earthly lot, whatever sort that is. In the Old Testament, the word for peace is shalom. The word is used about 250 times in the Old Testament. Sometimes it was used as a greeting, as it is in modern Hebrew. Shalom cannot refer to the absence of strife between people, nations, between God and man. And shalom speaks to the issue of personal peace, and the word really has a positive connotation. That's important. The word has a positive connotation. It's not merely the absence, uh, it's not merely uh, not negative in the sense of the absence of uh, trouble or conflict. It has a positive connotation. So positively, shalom means completeness, soundness, welfare, uh, a wish for contentment, health, prosperity, harmony, fulfillment. And, and basically prosperity in all of one's life across all the different levels. So the word shalom really means uh, a, a desire that all that is good would flow into your life. That's what the people, uh, the uh, Jewish people meant when they used the word shalom in the Old Testament. They still mean that today when they say shalom. They're not saying, look, I hope you're not, I hope you Stop fighting your wife, your husband, and your kids. But what they're saying is, look, I wish for you all good. I I wish for you the highest good to come your way. For all that brings fulfillment and satisfaction and completeness and contentment and blessedness to come into your life. Most people in the world, again, they don't understand that. And they don't understand that peace has a positive concept to it. Again, most people in the world think peace is just the absence of adversity. But again, the concept of biblical peace does not focus on the absence of adversity or or conflict uh, because peace, biblically, is really unrelated to circumstances. Peace, biblically, is unrelated to circumstances. It is, again, a goodness of life that is not touched by what happens on the outside. So you can have peace, biblical peace, in the midst of great trouble, great difficulties, persecution, times of adversity, sufferings, afflictions, of all different kinds. You can have all these things going on in your, wor- in your world and in your life, but you can still have biblical peace. Paul the Apostle, he understood biblical peace. Philippians 4.11 says, Not that I speak from want. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in <clears throat> prosperity and 
any every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, of both having abundance and suffering need. You see him and Silas in Acts chapter 16. They're accosted by the crowd. They're beaten. They're thrown into prison. Acts 16.23, <clears throat> when they inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And, have, have, and he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison, fastened their feet in stocks. Acts 16, verse 25, but about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. So Paul and Silas have peace even in the midst of being thrown in jail. Confident in God, confident in what God is doing, even when they're under arrest. And of course, if you know the story, that gives them an opportunity to communicate God's goodness to the Philippian jailer who's ultimately brought to salvation, Acts 16.34. You look at Paul's life, you're well aware of the fact that he had many issues, many troubles, trials, tribulations during his ministry. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23 says, In far more labors, and far more imprisonment, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I've spent in the deep. I've been, been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst and often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from such external things, there's the daily pressure uh, upon me of concern for all the churches. Paul understood problems. Yet in the middle of his difficult circumstances, Paul still enjoyed the peace that God gave him. Colossians 1.24, I rejoice in my sufferings. Philippians 3, I had accounted all, all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Verse 10, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. It's interesting, when you look at this man who suffered a lot <clears throat> in his life and a lot through his ministry, go back and look yourself. I'm going to give it to you, but you look yourself. In every one of Paul's epistles, begins with a greeting of grace and peace. Romans 1, verse 7, To all those who are beloved of God in Rome, called saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, 3, 2 Corinthians 1, 2, Galatians 1, 3, Philippians 1, 2, Philippians 1, uh, Ephesians 1, 2, and Philippians 1, 2, all say the same thing. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, 2, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ here at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. 1 Thessalonians 1, 1, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, the church at Thessalonians, in God and the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. 2 Thessalonians 1, 2, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 1, 2, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. 2 Timothy 1, 2, to Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Titus 1, 4, Titus, to Titus, my true child in the common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior, Philippian, or Philemon, 
uh, 1-3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's a man who suffered a lot in his earthly ministry. But he possessed personally peace from God. His introduction to all his letters, I don't think it's just, I got to fill up some spaces, I got to hit the word count. I, I think he was trying to help people in all these different places and individuals that he's writing to to know that there's grace, peace, and mercy from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he possessed personally the peace of God in midst of the circumstances. Therefore, he could say, listen, with great assurance while writing from prison, no less, Philippians 4 6, be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. He writes that from prison. So where can a person find peace? Again, that is not just the absence of trouble, but the kind of peace that can't be affected by danger or sorrow or trouble or tribulation, a positive peace. The kind of peace that enables a person to remain calm in the midst of fearful circumstances, that allows them to endure pain and sing in the midst of suffering. The kind of peace that, again, not affected by circumstance, but instead the kind of peace that affects and even overrides every kind of adversity and every kind of tribulation that even thrives in the midst of trouble. The answer is it's only found in Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. The person of peace. The God of peace. Now again, remember the setting here in John 14. It's Thursday night of the Passion Week. Jesus is literally just hours away from his own crucifixion. Just hours away from the mocking and the hatred and the cruelty. Just hours away from being betrayed by a close friend. Hours away from the murderers who hate him without cause, whom he will soon face. Hours away from not only just the physical suffering that is indescribable, the horrors of the cross, but hours away from when he will be punished, not for his own sin, for he has none, but he will be punished for all the sins of all the people throughout human history that will ever believe upon him. And at that moment when he is the sin bearer, that's when he will be separated from his father, something that has never happened in their eternal relationship that they have enjoyed eternally. Father is going to pour out his wrath upon his dear, dearly beloved son, the Lamb of God who stands there as the only and the perfect sacrifice, the perfect substitute. And, the guess, and you, what you have to understand is our Lord knows all of this is coming. He knows with perfect omniscience because he's God in the flesh. He knows what's coming. He knows what the whole thing means. He knows personally all the vast variety of details uh, that surround this most horrific uh, event, uh, without question, the most uh, dramatic and disturbing, distressing moment in his life, and the most dramatic moment in all of human history. And he knows what's coming for him. And he knows that his disciples are extremely anxious. They're they're distressed. He's told them that he's going to depart, and and their hearts are heavy. <clears throat> so, in the midst of all these personal situations that are about to be afflicted upon him in the, mercy, uh, in the midst of uh, distressing personal uh, circumstances, personal suffering that is coming, it's uh, good to note that he's not focused on himself. But he's focused on the disciples, the ones in front of him, because he loves them. 
And he's been pouring, about, pouring uh, out upon them one wonderful truth after another, encouraging their hearts, commanding them to believe, commanding them not to be anxious. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Then he's promised them there's going to be a reunion with him and the Father in heaven because in the Father's house there's many rooms. He says, look, I'm not going to leave you or forsake you. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to come back for you. And again, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to send you someone. I'm going to send you the comforter. It's the person of the Holy Spirit who has been with you, but he's going to come soon and he will dwell within you, not just with you, but within you. He's going to be there permanently and forever. He's told them that they have instant access to all the resources of heaven through prayer. He's told them that because they are obedient to him and they love him, that they will be forever loved by the Father and by him. I mean, just wonderful truths, one after another, piled and piled, piled on top of each other. And again, truths that are not only applicable to the 11 who are in front of him, but truths that are really for all of us. Because later on in John chapter 17, the Lord's going to pray and he's going to ask the Father to fulfill all these promises that he has made. He says, not only for those who are with me, but for all who believe. So all the promises are for all, all of us who believe. The promise of heaven, the promise that Christ is going to come back, he's going to take us to glory. The, the promise that uh, the Holy Spirit will dwell in us, within us. I mean, astonishing promises. He's going to send the person of the Holy Spirit, and he's going to illumine the scripture to you. He's going to bring to your understanding the truth. You'll understand my word. So again, he's given them com- uh, repeatedly given them comfort and encouragement, continuing to command them to trust him. Believe the truth. But again, he's going to send the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's going to continue to reveal that truth. Verse 26. The helper of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. I told you in the context, really, that's the, the promise of the New Testament text. That's really the promise of the perfect, infallible, inerrant New Testament text of Scripture. We, again, looked at that last time. It's the person of the Holy Spirit working in and through the personalities of fallen men to produce God's own authoritative, infallible, inerrant word. The scripture that is absolutely perfect. The scripture that is absolutely accurate, trustworthy in all that it says. Again, truth to encourage our heart. Truth to take us to a place of peace and remove from within us all anxiety as we continue to trust Christ and we continue to trust the Father and we continue to trust all that God has promised to do for us and in us and through us. A bit later in chapter 15, verse 26, he says, When the Helper comes, whom I send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, he will proceed from the Father and he will bear witness of me. And so one of the great truths of the person of the Holy Spirit, one of his uh, great ministries is not just illuminating truth, but he keeps pointing us to the person of Christ so that our love for Christ might grow, our understanding of Christ might increase that our confidence might be steadfast. So here we are the night before the crucifixion, literally hours away. And again, Jesus knows what he's about to face in his violent execution. He knows the hearts of the disciples are heavy. And he says to those whom he loves, verse 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you, not as the world gives. Do I give you? Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. It's the first time in all the promises in this discourse, this final discourse with his disciples that he mentions peace. Because listen to me, peace is something that belongs to the true believer. Peace is something that belongs to the true believer. 
in part because of the coming person of the Holy Spirit, in part because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The promise of the gift of peace is linked to his coming because peace is part of or a a portion of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. That's what he does. That's what he produces in a person's life, a believer's life. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So again, peace is part, the portion of the fruit or a portion of the fruit that the Holy Spirit who dwells within the believer produces in our life. Because that peace has been won for us by the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace has been won for us by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in the New Testament, there's two kinds of peace. First, you have objective peace that has to do with one's relationship to God. And then you have subjective peace which has to do with our experience in life. And if a man or woman doesn't have objective peace or peace with God, they most certainly will not have subjective peace. Because there can be no real peace in a person's life if there's still hostility between God and them. And again, the person apart from Christ knows no peace. He lacks peace with God. Because all men are in the same lot. All men are part of the rebellion started by Adam and Eve. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. It's called original sin. We're linked to our father, Adam. He brought rebellion into the world. He brought the promise of death because that's what God said. The day that you sin, uh, the day that you disobey, the day you eat the forbidden fruit, you'll die. And go, well, I don't know if I'm a sinner. Well, look, everybody dies. That means everybody's infected by sin. Romans 3.10, there's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. There's no one who does good. There's not even one. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's a lot of all mankind. Romans 5.10 says we are all enemies of God. Christ, by his own word, says there's nobody neutral. No one neutral towards God. Luke uh, 11, verse 23, he who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. God gives his commentary on the heart of mankind in Genesis 8, 21. He says, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now, the good news of the gospel is that God has reconciled his enemies to himself through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, 19, it says, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness of to dwell in him, speaking of Jesus Christ, and through him, Christ, to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Verse 21, And although you were formerly alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death, in order to present you before him, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. God is the one who does the reconciling. God is the one who ends the hostility. God is the one who uh, writes the peace treaty, as it were, and he writes it through the blood of his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because reconciliation and peace are entirely the prerogative of God. Reconciliation and peace is entirely the prerogative of God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's real objective peace. 
And again, to be justified means that the war between God and us is over. To be justified means that God has declared us not guilty and positively righteous. Again, that declaration is by the supreme judge of the universe based upon what he has done in and through Christ and based on your faith in the person of Jesus Christ. To be justified before God means there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's real objective peace. Again, won by Jesus Christ because he paid sin's penalty on the cross. Again, the wages of sin is death. That penalty has to be paid. Christ paid the penalty. He stood as the substitute, our substitute. He took the stroke that was due us, and God punished Christ so God wouldn't have to punish us. Therefore, it's only when a person repents and places their faith in the person of Jesus Christ that the enmity or the hostility is removed, where the hostility has ended. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, much more having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Verse 10, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. That's what Paul's talking about. That's what Paul means uh, in, in Ephesians 6 verse 15 when he calls the, calls the gospel or, or the good news of our salvation the gospel of peace. Hostilities end in Jesus Christ. Real objective peace comes by the person of Jesus Christ. Real objective peace with God comes only by grace alone, through faith alone, and the person of Jesus Christ alone. That's the only way for a sinful man to be reconciled unto God and to be for God to be at peace with man. It's through Jesus Christ. Because God is holy and God has to punish sin. And he's punished sin and he's satisfied his holiness and he's not violated his justice by punishing his son, the one who incarnated himself, who stepped from eternity into time, the, the God-man, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, instead of punishing us, he punishes him. And righteousness and peace are inseparably linked in Jesus Christ. And reconciliation is made between God and sinful man because of Jesus Christ. And again, God's holiness and justice is satisfied. The penalty for sin has been paid. And Christ fully satisfies the demands of the law. He fully satisfies divine justice through his voluntary, substitutionary, all-atoning, propitiatory sacrifice. Our sin counted to Christ. Christ's righteousness credited to us. Second Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses, uh, their trespasses against them. Verse 21 of 2 Corinthians 5, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Therefore, through Christ, Romans 3, verse 25 says, Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because of the forbearance of God. He passed over sins previously committed for the demonstration. Verse 26, I say, of his righteousness at the present time that he might be just and the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus. Objective peace comes through Jesus Christ only. Objective peace comes by way of justification. Now, objective peace leads to subjective peace. Experiential peace. The experience of peace in one's life. This kind of subjective peace is not peace with God, but listen, it is the peace of God. The peace of God that surpasses all comprehension. 
meaning that it transcends human insight, analysis, understanding. The peace of God that surpasses all comprehension, this peace, uh, Paul says, will guard believers' hearts and their minds in Christ Jesus. That's so important. You just need to put a mark there in in John because we'll come back, but I want you to see this. Turn, turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4. Verse 6. Philippians 4, verse 6. Be anxious for nothing. Want to take a shot at it? What you think it might mean in the Greek? Be anxious for nothing. Because, listen, every time we worry, every time we're anxious... Every time we fret, it indicates that we have a lack of trust in God. We have a lack of trust in his goodness. We have a lack of trust in his wisdom. We have a lack of trust in his sovereignty. We have a lack of trust in his power. Every time we're anxious, we are sinning. Against the character, the nature of God. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything. In every difficult situation, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, verse 7, and the peace of God. Again, it's, note, it's not peace with God, but it's the peace of God. Again, this is the subjective peace. Subjective peace won by the person of Jesus Christ, the one who's now reconciled us with the Father, the one who's provided just standing before him, uh, again, Jesus Christ providing us that just standing before God the Father. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, the Greek word guard there is a military term. It means to keep watch over or to keep uh, imprisoned. Again, it's a military term with the connotations meaning to stand at the post and guard against the aggression of an enemy. So what he's saying is because of the objective peace that the the believer has now with God through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, again, subjective peace has been won again by Christ. One writer says this, when peace is on guard, the peace of God, the Christian has entered into an impregnable citadel from which nothing can dislodge him. The name of the fortress is Christ. The guard is peace. Therefore, the peace of God protects believers from anxiety, doubt, fear, and distress. Thus, it is not passive, but active. And far from being affected by circumstances, this peace that triumphs over circumstances, turning sorrow into joy, fear into boldness, and doubting into confidence, this is the peace that Jesus promises his followers as a gift. This is the peace that Jesus is talking about in John 14. This is the peace that he wants to give his disciples as he is departing. Not just objective peace with God, not just reconciliation, that's part of it, and again, that'll be 
part of what happens in the activities that are carried out in the next day when he becomes the sin bearer, when he bears the punishment for all who would repent and believe upon him the next day on Calvary's cross. But he is giving to his disciples, his followers, the gift of subjective peace. And again, based on the objective peace that he's already run, he's already won or he will win by his substitutionary sacrifice on the cross. Subjective peace, experiential peace, uh, the tranquility of the soul, uh, a positive peace that is settled, a uh, peace that thrives regardless of one's circumstances in life. Peace that is aggressive, if you will. Peace that is aggressive and rather than being victimized by circumstances or events of one's life, actually attacks them. This is the peace that Christ gives his disciples. This is the, the peace that Christ gives to us as a gift. In the words of another, he says, it's a supernatural, permanent, positive, no side effect, divine tranquilizer. This peace is the heart calm after Calvary's storm. It is the firm conviction that he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will also with him graciously give us all things, as it says in Romans 8.32. John MacArthur says this is the kind of peace we all really want and desperately need. It is the peace that deals with the past so that the conscience is fully cleansed and the corrosive poison of past sins is washed away. It is the peace that governs the present with no unsatisfied desires gnawing at our heart. It is the peace that holds the promise for the future where no foreboding fear or some of some dark unknown tomorrow can threaten. That was the peace Jesus left with his disciples. The guilt of their past had been forgiven. The present trials would be overcome. Their destiny in the future was secured for all eternity. It was a rich, lavish gift. Paul, writing from prison, says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Again, the peace of God is a gift to us by Christ. It's the peace of God that stands guard, that, that watches over us, uh, watches over our hearts and keeps our hearts from worrying or burdening our hearts. It's the peace of God that stops us from uh, allowing unworthy thoughts to enter into our minds. That's why Paul says in verse 8, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's anything, any excellence in any of these things or worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. The things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace shall be with you. Why won't you take that gift? Why won't you take the gift? Why do you continue to worry about those things you have no control over? Because anxiety really is a failure to trust God, to trust his word, to trust his nature, to trust his character, 
his promises, his power, his provision, his sovereignty, his goodness. Because again, anxiety is sin. And anxiety at its core is really an inner, uh, 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 inappropriate response. An inappropriate response in the light of the circumstances of everyday life. Again, we live in a fallen world. Problems all around us, and sometimes, sometimes things don't go as planned. One writer says this. He says, worry can't move you one inch closer to any solution to your problems. In fact, worrying creates even more problems. Because worry can't change the past or control the future. All it does is make you miserable for the day. John MacArthur, in his book entitled Anxiety Attacked, says, We allow our daily concerns to turn into worry and therefore sin when our thoughts become focused on changing the future instead of doing our best to handle present circumstances. Such thoughts are unproductive. They end up controlling us, though it should be the other way around. It causes us to neglect other responsibilities and relationships. That brings on legitimate feelings of guilt. If we don't deal with those feelings in a productive manner by getting back on track with our duties in life, we will lose hope instead of finding answers. Anxiety left unresolved can debilitate one's mind and body and even lead to panic attacks. We need to think about this issue deeply. I mean, Christ is giving to his followers the gift of peace. The peace of God. Now go back to John. John 14. They're anxious. He's about to depart. He's got his own issues, but his his focus is on them because he loves them. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Again, subjective, experiential peace. It's part of the life of the Christian. It's a gift given to us, won by Christ, administered by the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit who produces peace. Paul in Romans 14, 17 says, The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Romans 15, 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. 2 Thessalonians 3, 16, May the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. Again, this is Christ's gift, subjective peace to his followers, in a fallen world. Peace I leave with you. Several commentators have uh, noted it's kind of like uh, somebody's will, right? Uh, somebody, they have, they have uh, friends and family and, and they, they write a will and then when they die, they leave instructions in that will. They, they give gifts to their family and friends. And that's kind of the situation here. Christ is departing. He's about to face death. And this is what he wants to give to his disciples above anything else. It's peace. I mean, how many believers don't realize how rich they are in Christ as they've been named as a beneficiary in Christ's will, so to speak, and they refuse the gift? (coughs) Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. You can only give to another person that which you possess, that which you own yourself. In a sense, Jesus is the God of peace, He's decided not to give them houses or possessions, a new car or a boat. 
He wants to give his disciples his peace, my peace. The same peace that's going to sustain him in the midst of the terrors of the cross that he's going to soon face. The same peace that's going to sustain him in the midst of the physical suffering, the mocking, the beatings, the the hostility, the hatred, the betrayal, the death. The peace that's going to cause him to lean upon his Father in heaven to receive strength and enable to endure the cross. Again, this is the same kind of peace that Christ wants you to possess. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Peace again above your circumstances. Peace in spite of your circumstances. Freedom from worry, freedom from anxiety. A peace that is unaffected by the difficulties of this life. Christ's peace that that triumphs over the most difficult of circumstances. That is his gift to you if you're a follower of his. That's his gift to you if you know him. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. And I ask the question again, why won't you take the gift? Why do you continue to worry over those things you have no control? Why do you fail to trust God in his word? Why do you fail to cast dispersion upon his nature and his character? His promises, his power, his provision, his sovereignty, his goodness. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. And again, every blessing we enjoy in the Christian life comes from God. It comes from the Trinity. All three persons of the Godhead uh, get involved in this. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I repeated it earlier, all the different portions of uh, uh, the, the New Testament Scripture, that promise of peace, the person of peace, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit who produces peace. We sang this morning the very same theme. We we, we, we pray always, we, we are to look up, we are, as the writer of the book of Hebrews encourages us, we are to be fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith, who the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the same, the shame is now set down at the right hand of the throne of God. We look to him. Christ says, look, I'm leaving, I'm going to give you something. The only way to enjoy uh, life or to make it in this life, to enjoy peace in a fallen world, is to take the peace I want to give to you. 2 Thessalonians 3.16, may the Lord of peace himself continue to grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all, freely available to all of Christ's disciples, to all those who repented and placed their faith in him. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Then he says this, not as the world gives do I give to you. Again, there's no true peace apart from Christ. All the world offers is a cheap counterfeit. Just a temporary respite from troubles and difficulties in this world. Again, either through self-indulgence or materialisms or drugs or alcohol or illicit sexual activities, all the world's false religious systems, all the psychological manipulation uh, that goes on, all the host of other experiences, other forms of escapism. But the world offers no true peace. Now, the false prophets of the culture and the false prophets, uh, the false teachers of the apostate religious systems, some that even call themselves Christian, those false teachers of our day, they say peace, peace, but there is no peace. Because the world, separated from Christ, is under condemnation. 
The world separated from Christ can never know true peace. Because if the unsaved world truly knew the destiny that awaited them apart from Christ, the illusion of peace many think that they are currently enjoying out of ignorance, that would evaporate immediately if they only knew the truth. Because the world separate from Christ is under God's judgment. It's under his wrath. The words of Christ, John 3 and 18, He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. Because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. John 3 and 36, He who believes the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We talk about it often. This country for sure and around the world is under the active judgment of God. The wrath of God. And apart from Christ and apart from repentance and faith in God through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're enemies of God. And not only are we enemies, we are by nature children of wrath, as it says in Ephesians 2.3. That's why you see repeated in the Old Testament often uh, places like Isaiah 48, verse 22, where it says, There is no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. Uh, Isaiah 57, verse 21, There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. The world, mankind and himself, will never find the subjective peace he desires for his heart or in his heart until he has objective peace with God. The unbelievers, Paul wrote this, Romans 3 and 13, he says, Their throat's an open grave, with their tongues they keep on deceiving, the poison of asps is under their lips, whose whole mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. That man, that's mankind's greatest problem right there. There's no fear of God. We're fearful of a virus, we're fearful of global warming. And most people are absolutely stupidly indifferent to God and his holiness. Most people are stupidly indifferent to the fact that they're currently under God's condemnation and wrath, the path of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes, and they have been judged already, those who do not believe. There's no tomorrow to figure this out. You're not assured of tomorrow. That's presumptuous sin. Today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow. Until a man repents and places his faith in Jesus Christ, he remains under or she remains under the active judgment and the wrath of God, unknowingly awaiting eternal torment in a literal place called hell. Again, he who believes is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. John eight twenty four. Jesus said, You shall die in your sins. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And those who reject Christ and those who die in their sins, Christ warned that the Son of Man is going to send forth these angels, are going to gather out of the kingdom all the stumbling blocks, and those who commit lawlessness are going to cast them into the furnace of fire. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 13, verse 41. Matthew 25, verse 41. The, the words of Jesus, then they'll say on those, those on his left, it's the unrepentant sinner, says, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire that has been prepared for the devil and his angels. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus Christ, verse 43, down to about verse 48, he talks about hell as the unquenchable fire, a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. He says that over and over again. 
You're going to be cast into the eternal hell. Fire is not quenchable. Cast into eternal hell where, the, hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That's the kind of peace that the world is offering to people. It's, the, it's a peace that's going to lead to eternal judgment. That's the best you're getting from the world, eternal judgment. But the kind of peace that Christ is offering to his followers, to the 11 here in the upper room, and to all of us again by way of extension, this subjective peace is peace in life in a troubled world. Peace won by the objective work of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace granted as a gift. Peace above all circumstances. Peace that will allow you to be victorious in all situations because your eternal destiny has already been dealt with in Jesus Christ. You now have objective peace with God, justified before the Father and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in a position of no condemnation. Therefore, objective peace provides for you experiential peace. Peace in the midst of life. And that's what Christ wants his disciples to have. It's his gift of kindness towards you if you follow him. That's the riches that he has won upon Calvary's Christ, a Calvary's cross. That's the riches he's won in his victory upon Calvary's cross, and he wants to give it to you, supernatural peace. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give you. Then he concludes with, let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. That's the command of Christ to believe the truth. That's the command of Christ to live according to the truth. Trust the Father. Trust Christ. Believe. Believe upon them both. And when we choose to live in fear or or let the troubles of a fallen world cause uh, cause us to be anxious, then we're failing to appropriate the gift that God wants to give to us. And again, I don't know how many times I've asked it before, but I'm going to ask it again. Why won't you take the gift? Why don't you take the gift? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. In Christ, God has forgiven your past, provided for your present, and guarded the future. Therefore, There's nothing legitimately for you to be anxious about. Nothing legitimately should ever disrupt the peace of God in your life. Therefore, you must be obedient to the command here in verse 27, let not your heart be troubled. Let it not be fearful. You must be obedient to the command at the top of the chapter, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Peter says in 2 Peter 1, 2, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ our Lord, seeing that his divine power is granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. He says, look, you have all the resources you need in Christ in a fallen world. Everything you need. Grace and peace multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ. So again, here in the context of John 14, Christ has promised his disciples 
the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit is going to be with them forever. He's promised them direct access to heaven through prayer. He's promised them that the truth is going to come and be accessible to them. It'll be illuminated by the person of the Holy Spirit who continues to reveal truth and points to the person of Jesus Christ. And all he's saying is we have to believe. We need to trust. We need to believe. We need to trust. We need to pray. We need to study the scripture well so that our hearts and our minds are filled with truthful things. We need to walk under the power of the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit, not by our flesh. And we need to appropriate by faith the great gift of peace that God desires through Christ for his children to presently possess. That's why Paul says in Romans 14, 19, he says, Let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Why the author of the, uh, the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 12, verse 14, says, Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without no one will see the Lord. That's why Paul says to the Colossians, Colossians 3, verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called into one body and be thankful. Let Christ's peace rule your heart. Take your focus off your problems. Take your focus off your troubles. Take your focus off all of the issues and situations in chaos of a fallen world that is in rebellion against God and under his active judgment. Take your focus off of yourself and constantly look upon the person of Jesus Christ. Colossians 3.1, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth. Our, our focus, our vision needs to be on Christ and him alone. one who says peace i live with you my peace i give to you not as the world gives do i give you let not your heart be troubled nor let it be fearful our father in heaven we stop and bow before you in prayer and ask ourselves again the repeated question why don't we take that gift why do we continue to worry about things we have no control over why do we allow anxiety to rule our hearts which is really a failure to trust you Trust your word, your nature, your character. Anxiety or lack of peace in our life is really a failure on our part to believe you and to believe your promises, your power, your provision, your sovereignty, your goodness. Anxiety really is an inappropriate response on our part to our circumstances because we refuse the gracious gift that you want to provide your children whom you love. That's why Christ said in the book of Matthew, he said, don't be anxious about your life. Don't worry about what you're going to eat or drink or what you're going to put on. He says, what, what good is being anxious going to do for your life? It's not going to add a single cubit of lifespan. He says, don't be anxious. It says, your father, our father knows everything that you need. He says, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. Keep Christ preeminent. And all these things will be added. Therefore, don't be anxious. The word of the Savior to his beloved children whom he will give his life, don't be anxious. Take the peace. Take that gift. The world's offering a fake promise that can never fulfill. Christ says, look at me and don't let your heart be troubled. Don't let it be fearful. We praise you, our God, and thank you. Help us to walk in obedience to the wonderful, great truth 
that you have revealed to us this morning through John's pen, through the words of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.